Welcome to the Talking Book Podcast. I am Perry Patterson, and today coming to you live from my hotel room in Meridian, Mississippi, with true crime author Ronna Gray. Ronna, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us from the airport in uh, New Orleans in your car. Thank you for taking time to be with us on the podcast this morning. Um, Ronna has written a true crime novel and has won a lot of awards. I do want to comment before I introduce Ronna to you that if you are squeamish about the topic, it is going to be about a child predator. So please, um, you know, take that into consideration. We won't go into a lot of like gory details, but we do want to make sure that parents and grandparents and caregivers are aware of what to look for. Um, Ronna Gray is a Louisiana public relations consultant whose career highlights include her state's two favorite pastimes, politics and sports. Politics Magazine named her one of the top 100 influencers in Louisiana. Sales and marketing executives named her Marketer of the Year and Business Report Magazine listed her as one of Baton Rouge's influential women in business. Her first book, Familiar Evil is a story straight out of the headlines from Louisiana to London involving the international search for a TV personality that exposed his dark side as a child predator. Familiar Evil has been honored with 13 national and international book awards, including seven gold medals for best true crime. It was the focus of the premiere episode of The Lies That Bind a primetime series on the Investigation Discovery ID Network. And the ID Network's two-hour special primetime documentary, Lion King, kind of sounds like Lion King, but it's lying, <laughs> the word lying, the lying. Scott Rogers story. Rana has presented the story behind Familiar Evil at conferences in the U.S. and U.K. this year. She was on the faculty of the Las Vegas Writers Conference and taught the Writers Workshop for the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge, where she lives. She has also written two award-winning mysteries for young readers with her twin grandnieces as part of the Louisiana Mystery Series. Rana earned her BA and master's degrees in journalism from Louisiana State University, LSU. All right. Thank and you, this is Thank you so much. This is Rana's book, and I have page, turned down so many pages and highlighted so many places in this book. We can't go into all of it, but what I will say about the book is that it's written in journal, kind of like a journal style, like a diary almost, because from day one, when you got that email from the UK and you did not know who that email was from and you did, right. this person was reaching out to you about someone that you had a business um, relationship with, you started documenting from day one. So this book takes you day one to day 365 when the murder-suicides take place. So very well, it's very detailed, very detailed book. Right. Um, and... I do want to let you kind of explain what parents need to look for because he was such a manipulator and he really started yes. getting into like 
befriending the police, befriending uh, rabbis, befriending people that are in the ministry, and, uh, you know, council members, people that, the mayor, you know, people like that. And especially when he was in the UK, Scott Rogers had this dance academy that he started and he promised fame. He got involved with the parents. He won the parents over. Talk a little bit about that type of personality that we need to look for. All right. Thank you, Perry, so much. You did a great job of telling our listeners mm-hmm. uh, what the story is about. One thing I want to mention, thank goodness for email, because mm-hmm. I had no idea I ended up writing a book, obviously. That came about much later. But because that's the way we communicated, mm-hmm. when I was asked to write the book, then I thought, well, I've got all these emails from day one Mm -hmm. back and forth with the young man who contacted me from the UK. So I had the dates and who I talked to on which date. And it it ended up when I was asked to do the book, I thought, I think I could do this because I've got an outline already Mm -hmm. thanks to email. That's really it. Mm -hmm. I tell people about this story. If someone wants access to children so badly Mm -hmm. and um, promises things like you said the performing arts school promised them to they'd get Mm -hmm. auditions on the London stage Mm -hmm. he was actually planning to open a performing arts academy in Baton Rouge that Mm -hmm. was on the drawing books we found that out much later but he used that model to get close to children Mm -hmm. watch also for them taking them into their confidence Mm-hmm. and sort of turning them against their parents like oh, right. i'm your best friend listen right. to me obviously giving them any kind of gifts that they don't discuss with the parents i now mm-hmm. have spoken at some training sessions for um grandparents and uh casa volunteers and all kinds of people who advocate for children to tell them some of these things but i also want to mention what you said earlier that the book is about the investigation that mm-hmm. led to exposing him. I certainly don't want anyone to think that we talk about any kind of abuse in the book, because as I told the the people who cooperated, once you say a child was sexually abused, what else mm-hmm. do you have to say? There's nothing else to go mm-hmm. with that. You know how horrible right. it is from the get-go. Right. So mm-hmm. we, we focused on our role in it, mm-hmm. which was the investigation working with law enforcement, both in the Mm -hmm. United States and the UK. Yes. And it is just a little bit of background about how the email came to, to you directly. And it was because you had a business um, association with Scott Rogers, where he had a television program and he was working with the community as kind of his facade of, of kind of right. gaining the community's um, trust, so to speak. And through right. that, you guys were working together on a program that was supposed to help the community be more aware of like, um, was it natural? It was emergency preparedness. Emergency, right. right. Because after right. Katrina, they wanted to make sure the community was prepared with emergency awareness and, and where to go and things like that. And you were working with him on that. And there was some kind of disagreement where he went to the newspaper and right. and brought your company, your public relations My company, company, our client, 
met the mayor. He tried to bring, it really all started when our client had an issue with him Yeah. and she wanted a meeting. And that's the only time I was ever, I ever met him. That was yeah. when he was very much a behind the scenes operator. Mm -hmm. He was using two young men who he brought from England with him who he'd had control over since they were about 12 years old mm -hmm. and he used them as the front they were very polite and mm -hmm. uh worked with us and he never showed his face until this meeting when she had some pretty tough questions for him mm -hmm. and i think he sensed that she might be either going to cancel his contract mm -hmm. or on to him but he really turned on a dime on everyone mm -hmm. and all of a sudden he's gone to the newspaper and he's made up all these things about everybody and said he was forced to work with me and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And we were a little surprised where this came from, what would right. made him do this. And being a journalism major, I laugh and tell people I did the only thing I thought you could do. I wrote a letter to the editor yeah. to, uh, to, correct, to set the record she straight. She set the record straight, and right. That, Mm -hmm. That letter to the editor was found three years later online by a young man who'd been searching the world for Scott Rogers for 13 mm -hmm. years. Right. So the power Amazing. of a letter to the editor. Right, exactly. <laughs> and that that boy is mentioned in your book, and in his own words, he tells his story um, in his um and how he was manipulated and abused by Scott Rogers. And then for, like you said, for 13 years, he did research and trying to find him, stumbled across that letter that you wrote to the editor of the newspaper, trying to set your business straight with um, the situation between uh, right. your company and Scott Rogers to make sure the record was straight. Founds it. He, he found your name, contacted you directly. And then you then took that letter to a friend of yours who I guess was an attorney and he was able to kind of yes. guide you and how to go about this information yes. that you had stumbled upon. He was a very successful uh, criminal defense attorney. So I also knew that he had represented mm -hmm. uh, sex offenders. Mm -hmm. So I knew that he knew the behaviors and all. So, and, and a close friend and advisor. And, and I don't mind saying that when I got the email from someone in the UK telling me how dangerous Scott Rogers was and I had to warn the community, uh, and, you know, it's frightening to get something like that. There's no embarrassment to say it scared me mm -hmm. um yeah so i took it to him and he cautioned me and sort of gave me some very good advice keep asking him questions mm -hmm. the young man was incredible we knew after a few mm -hmm. i had a gut feeling that this is what we had been missing it was just like a missing right. piece to this puzzle about this really unusual british guy with this sort mm -hmm. of collection of same age people who were living mm -hmm. with him, but didn't all seem to be related. Right. Uh, why did they never go home? I asked mm -hmm. one time, yeah. do you ever go home and visit your family? And they were like, no. Mm -hmm. You know, all these just things didn't make sense to me. Right. I, I assumed, honestly, I assumed they had some immigration issues for not traveling. Right. Which was also true. Which was also true. But um, it's just... Um, you know, you just have to tell people if something seems odd, don't dismiss it. Right. A lot of people have told me they would have gotten that email and thought it was the Nigerian prince telling you they had a fortune to send to you. But there was just something about the way he wrote it that mm -hmm. I believed it from the beginning. Right.
Right. Yeah. It was almost like a, it was a miracle um, that you, that it landed to you and you took it and you, and you started researching, how can I help him? We need to find out more information. We need to find out, you know, are there more? And of course, from that point, he sent you newspaper articles where Scott Rogers had a trial in England and it was a hung jury because that one child that came forward and said, this is what happened to me. But because of all of those people that Scott Rogers had been entangled with and had manipulated the, the, the law enforcement and, and other people, he had so many people, adult people on his side. And that's the way he manipulates and works behind the scenes is creating these facades. And so that's how the jury in, in England became a hung jury. And they didn't, um, and then he pops over here and starts doing things in the United States. Um, and like you said, he was planning on opening another dance academy, but didn't get around to it, but did adopt two children that had um, learning disabilities that couldn't right. really communicate. And that was one of the things that you guys were fearful of, that he was going to start this again with these children. And you wanted to make sure they were safe. And so you went to another... Um, T talk about how you went from the the attorney to I think her name was Mary Jo was it Mary Jane Markendale right mm -hmm. um, well we went to a lot of people looking mm -hmm. for guidance because I wanted to help him and I kept asking Nathan Fisher the attorney are these children in danger and he said absolutely mm -hmm. so I said well then we have to find someone to help him and we went to a lot of people. And sadly, many people told Nathan, either with me in the room or after I left, that he should tell me to leave this alone, that mm -hmm. uh, I should not get involved. And there's some feeling sometimes among people that this is such a taboo subject that mm -hmm. maybe, you know, you don't want to be involved in it, that maybe it reflects poorly on you. And I'm thinking, no, if yeah. there are children in danger, right. it's you have a responsibility to do mm -hmm. something. And yeah. then he suggested Mary Jane Markentel. She's a very experienced paralegal that's worked criminal cases, which is a little unusual. Uh, they obviously work a lot of civil cases doing research. And he said, I need to know if there's a crime, a specific crime we could take to law enforcement. Right. So mm -hmm. I knew Mary Jane. Now we're obviously great friends and I talked to her a lot more than I, I did back then. But we worked um, with her coordinating with law enforcement when, when we finally started getting some help. And she's the one who suggested we go to an assistant U.S. attorney in Lafayette, Louisiana, outside of our city where he might know someone and mm -hmm. and it ended up that he did know people in law enforcement there and also uh uh luke walker who had um a lot of experience 25 plus years prosecuting child sex offenders mm -hmm. and so very experienced took one look at it knew exactly what it was right so mary jane as you said mary jane uh, coordinated law enforcement and I worked with the victims and we were pulling in more victims from the UK mm -hmm. because Nathan kept telling him you're very credible two would be better right three would be even better mm -hmm. so he was he was talking to 
classmates, former classmates over there mm -hmm. about also. And they have no, a lot of people don't realize this, but they have no statute of limitation on child sex offenses mm -hmm. in the UK. So the young man who filed the first charges and they have no double jeopardy. Mm -hmm. So he would have actually been able to go file charges again mm -hmm. and have a trial as an adult. And so that's another thing that made getting him to the UK to face those charges. We had no uh, firsthand knowledge of any abuse in mm -hmm. Louisiana. We just knew he was setting up the same, as the law enforcement called it, same business model. Right. He was preparing. And one of the things that it said in the in your book um, that you or that was told to you by his former students at the academy was that they went on trips to like Malaysia and Malaysia is a um, to take these these kids on these dance trips uh, from the UK to Malaysia and what Malaysia is one of those places where there is sex trafficking. And we think he was selling, possibly selling children to the Malaysian or somebody in. Right. Right. He definitely, we know that from some of the victims that he set up um, sexual um, contact mm -hmm. with adults, with these children. And um, whenever he was adopting the second child and the uh, Louisiana authorities were interviewing him and what he thought was the final interview, but by now they had been made aware of his past and they were asking a lot of questions. And when he said, I just can't wait for the second adoption to be final. And so I can take the whole family and I say that with the air quotes, yeah. family on a family vacation, which would have been the two victims he brought with him from the UK, his adult yeah. daughter, these two children. Mm -hmm. And one of the interviewers said, Oh, that's interesting. Where do you all plan to go? And he said, Malaysia. And she, yeah. she said later, what's wrong with Disney world. Right. Right. That's a, yeah. That was definitely, definitely a red flag that, there. Yes, mm -hmm. of course. And he had done a lot of that in countries that had, as you say, a reputation for very loose prosecution of, child trafficking and, and mm -hmm. uh, crimes against children, um, he would he would get them maybe to say, oh, they're opening a hotel. I'll bring a dance troupe and we'll provide part of the program. So he always had a reason mm -hmm. to get the parents right. to take them on this fabulous trip. Right. And the way that you guys ended up um, finding a criminal, I guess, um, route to try to prosecute him or to convict him of something false was the documentations on his uh, adoption papers and his visa for coming citizenship. in citizenship yeah. mm -hmm. because right. he, lied, he lied obviously for, on he, several of those documents. Yes. Like they always say about Al Capone, they got him on tax evasion, mm -hmm. you know, maybe not on all the people he had murdered, but catch him on tax evasion. We said from the beginning, how could this man have been a foster parent and adopted children and mm -hmm. uh, gotten citizenship and gotten a concealed weapons mm -hmm. permit mm -hmm. if he admitted on paperwork that he had 
um, been arrested because you know how federal documents are. They'll ask you, have you ever been arrested? And then you get the option and say, well, I was acquitted or the charges were dropped or how they were uh, carried out. And so he always said no. And so he had lied on all of these documents. So that would have, um, that gave the federal officials of the United States something to take to a federal grand jury. Uh, one of the victims had gone into protective custody and would have testified against him about the trafficking. And so that would have given them enough to charge him in the United States, but hopefully extradite him to the UK for the really more serious crimes where law enforcement there thought it was very possible he had hundreds of victims. Right. He ran the, he ran the academy for over 10 years before mm-hmm. having to shut it down because of the bad publicity from the trial. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was our hope. That was our hope that he could be charged here and sent to the UK and face those young men as adults when they had a lot more self-confidence and would be able to testify in a trial and unafraid of him. Right. And as the trial starts to progress here in in Baton Rouge, Scott Rogers became more fearful that he was going to be caught and all would be exposed and his true identity would be there for everybody to see because he had been so manipulative in his uh, persona of who he was within the community. I mean, he even started a church. And which is really creepy and had people believing in him. And as the trial starts to progress in the, in Baton Rouge, where they're going to bring out these false documents and know that he's lied on these documents, um, he gets very nervous and starts preparing to commit suicide. And one of those men that he had brought over from the UK that he had manipulated as a child and, and kind of, you know, they just were his entourage. I don't know what else to call it, but one of them was like, well, when he started walking with me and telling me, I just want us to go upstairs, lie down on the bed together and shoot ourselves in the heart. And he Isn't said, and he said, and that one boy, Stuart, I believe his name was, said, yes. I've got to get out of here now because yes. he, he, had finally, he finally, finally had, saw the truth and said, yeah. I've got to get away from this. He's serious about he's getting because he became more and more distraught. Scott Rogers, the closer the trial came, he knew right. I'm going to if I'm arrested, I'm going to be. You know, it's over for me. And and he he wanted to take that easy way out, that suicide route. And um, so Stuart leaves and then it's kind of left to the other guy, Michael, uh, where he uh, convinces him, I think, to to actually Matt, pull the trigger. Matthew, right. Matthew. Matthew. Okay, Matthew. Right. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. And um, it was actually a federal grand jury so it was all in secrecy but i think what set him which made the public that much more shocked when the end came Mm -hmm. and what happened the murder suicide happened but um i think the turning point for him to really start spiraling out of control was when the authorities finally had enough evidence to pick up those two children from custody right Mm -hmm. and when when they do they have 
72 hours or so, they have to have a uh, emergency hearing to sit this to prove to a judge they have enough evidence to hold those children and not return them to that home. Mm-hmm. And when he sat in Iberville Parish, right outside of Baton Rouge, where he lived, in a courtroom, again, a closed hearing, anything to do with children, you know, is done in confidence. And when he sat in there and heard the postal inspection agent, Allison Hoffine, go through what she had in terms of evidence, he knew people were talking. He knew she now had connected him to the case in the UK and to victims in the UK who knew the whole story. So the children were not going back to him and he started then spiraling out of control. Mm -hmm. And ended up convincing Matthews, Matthew, Matthew. convinced him that he needed to shoot um, Scott and then he needed to turn the gun on himself. And there was a lady um, named Maria that was in the house. And the thing about it is when I was reading the book, how did you get that information of what was going on in that house those last few days before that trial was about to take place? Because obviously he had put this suicide, murder, suicide in place. He had written all these documents saying this is where the safe is. This is where the papers are. You need to take this. This is where the money is. This is where the bank accounts are. He had put all of these things in place knowing that he's going to be gone and he's not going to go to trial and he wanted to make sure everything was put into place beforehand and he involved this woman named Maria and she had a document from him in her purse. So when the the ambulance shows up and the police show up at the house after the murder-suicide, her purse was, I think, taken or, or into custody or something. In the house and she was out, right? She was frantic to get it. Right? Yeah, she wanted to get that paper because that would have, I guess, implied that she knew yeah. this was right. going to take place before it actually did. So how She's did a very you? Very mysterious. She's a mysterious character. But you're asking a very good question. I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that, and I'm I'm excited to share it with everyone. Okay. Um, so one, we had Stuart, as you mentioned who uh, went into protective custody when he was approached about the murder-suicide. And I was able to interview him extensively writing the book. But once a uh, case closes and the sheriff's office in Everville Parish left this case open, I want to say for four to six months, and ask if there were any other victims to come forward. And no one came forward. And then one day I'm watching television and uh, I hear him say, We've never heard from any victims. The case is officially closed. When the case closes, all of the police documents become public record. So I was able to make a public, by then I'd been asked about writing the book. I was able to make a public records request to the sheriff's office and I I was able to pick up everything. All the interviews with her, which were videotaped and I was able to watch those, the interviews with Stuart, all photos of all that evidence that you're talking about, the money behind the picture frame where he hid it, all the notes that he left with the passwords to all of his accounts and things like that. I was able to get all that as a public record from the sheriff's office. And that filled in a lot of blanks about what happened during that very chaotic crime scene. Mary Jane went to the crime scene. She observed a lot of 
Maria Edwards' behavior there on the scene. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of information to put the picture together for the reader. Okay. That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That, that, that tells a lot about being able to, to, to view those records and then write your book later. Um, so in the end, the victims, the ones in England, the one that's in your book, um, there's two of them that came forward and, and they have, you have, um, their words in here. Ethan is one yeah. of them. And I believe it's Jack is the other one. Jake, Jake right. is the other one. Right. And so they finally got closure on something that happened to them that was completely horrifying. And then Stuart was able to move on and have a normal life too. Um, talk a little yeah. bit about afterwards. Like you, you went to England and you actually got to meet Ethan. Did you get to meet Jake too? Yes. And, yes. and you Ethan sat down and, and did you interview Stuart as well? I interviewed Stuart and he came back to Baton Rouge. He lives in Baton Rouge now. So he moved back there. He's married and has a family and made himself completely available. Mm -hmm. I think he's very appreciative that someone finally yeah. looked into what was going on there and he was able to be freed from that. And then Ethan did a great job of connecting me with some other victims over there that are also interviewed for the book, as well as at least a couple of um, people who attended the academy, but were not victims of mm -hmm. sexual abuse, but certainly knew of the players. And then we went together to Jake's home and met him, his wife, and his children. They're, Perry, they're two of the most remarkable young men I think I've ever met. Um, I also met the young man who um, pressed charges over there and ended in a hung jury, which devastated him and has really hurt him throughout his adult life. And I kept telling him over and over, if you hadn't done that, he would have never been caught. I know. So there was yeah. something worth doing that. Mm -hmm. But they were all, uh, they've all, you know, when you can't write this book until you go there and walk the streets of Barry St. Edmunds where it started, meet these people. And I tell everyone it was just really a life-changing experience for me. I wouldn't trade that for anything, meeting these incredible people. And they really deserve all the credit. Yeah. For being just for being able to come forward and say this is what really happened, and he was a master manipulator. He was a, a, a what do they say? Sheep's and wool clothing, literally. Right. And I know and when, also mm -hmm. they also it's another thing people say, uh, you know, living in plain sight. Right. But mm -hmm. but not online. He wouldn't let anyone have social media right. accounts or be anywhere online. Tried to hide that, but mm -hmm. made no effort. In fact, craved attention. Right. That's another really sign of, of this sort of narcissistic personality, too. Right. Yeah. Incredible story. And congratulations on all the awards for Familiar Evil. This... Um, just all the work that you did to bring this um, case to justice. And uh, it's just incredible. 
and I know oh, you're very you proud. So I know you're very proud, and it and it certainly gives the public a way to really kind of understand. You know, this is what we need to look for. I mean, these people come in and they and they befriend the ministers, they befriend the the mayor and the police, and all this all of this stuff. And he was doing um, promotions on his TV show um, about. Uh, child predators, right? He was yes, kind of doing yes. shows. Yes, he was portraying himself to the wow. sheriff as I can help you stop these people. It's it's just incredible. I think it's something mm -hmm. in their personality they like to flirt with danger. Mm -hmm. You mentioned it, the book's very well documented. You know, he was accused of being basically running a cult in the UK, and that's much what he was doing in Louisiana. And so I felt the need to really make sure there were people who didn't believe any of this from the beginning. Mm -hmm. There were people, you know, public officials who said what a wonderful father and citizen he was. Yeah. And I really felt the need to close the door on no, he was not. Right. He was he was a monster and mm -hmm. he may have done what appeared to be good things, but it was just, you mm -hmm. know, first you seduce the community. Yeah. And then if anyone ever says anything about you, they'll rise up and defend you. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to shut that down. And that's exactly what happened in England with that case. Exactly yes. what happened. He had so many people that he had befriended that the yes. case became a hung jury. And then he comes to yes. the United States and starts doing that again um, because they cannot help themselves. Like you said, they they have this strange um, behavior that just almost compels them to prey on children and in the innocent and manipulate them in their lives. And um, yes. you brought, you definitely brought his story um, into the light. And I know that the community of Baton Rouge, Louisiana is so grateful to you. Um, the police department and everybody is so grateful to you for just uh, um, sharing the story and, and, telling it so that others can be aware of what, you know, maybe things don't seem right. If you have that feeling, right. it's probably because right. there's something there that you need to investigate and check into further that something isn't right. Yeah. Feeling is definitely, definitely there for a reason. Um, and yeah, Raina, I, right. Rana, I do want to um, talk about your other two books. You have children's books, the mystery books, can you talk a little bit about those um, before you go? Because I am interested in those. Our um, book club back home in Atlanta um, has two little book boxes, little libraries that we donated to the community during COVID. And I would love to um, add those to our, our book boxes. Oh, so talk, yeah, talk a little bit great. about that's why I'm sitting at the New Orleans airport when you and I first scheduled this some time ago. I didn't know that uh, the second book, uh, Mystery of the Heart-Shaped Locket, uh, set in Baton Rouge, uh, won an award. And I'm on my way to a children's book festival in Michigan. They have a nice award ceremony tomorrow night uh, that I'm going to go attend and speak at that. But uh, it's a three-parter, I guess. I've got... Um, young, uh, great nieces, identical twins. I wanted them to love reading as much as I did growing mm -hmm. up. It's a little bit of an homage to Nancy Drew because I read all of those books growing up and just, I think that the reading those mysteries 
helped me uh, really enjoy reading as well. And then it was kind of, a, as I tell everyone, a mental palate cleanser from writing a true crime book <laughs> that the, the, when the twins were interested in uh, writing stories, I started with them. I took it to my publisher. The first one set in New Orleans where they live. I took it to my publisher and he said, well, I don't publish children's books, but if you're willing to write at least three in a series, kids like that and I could see that doing well so we're working on our third now it'll be set in Lafayette Louisiana and they have gotten hooked on writing with me they're great plotters um, they resolve conflicts in it they name all the characters we go everywhere in the books that the, the characters go uh, the two characters are identical twins they're sort of junior detectives and Nancy Drew style detectives. And we did New Orleans going to their favorite places, going to favorite places in Baton Rouge. So it gives kids a little bit of a look at the city, whether they visit or live there and um, teaches you some things. I try to put some lessons in them like adopting pets from the pound was one of them and when to talk to your parents. Police in the first one was case of the missing poodle. Taught them how to answer police questions appropriately. So, a lot of fun, and I'm thrilled that they've uh, have done well also. And I get to go. This children's book festival is fantastic, and I come back with lots of ideas to share with them. So I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. And tell the listeners uh, where they can find your books. Obviously, Amazon, of course, but your. Yes. But you're, you They're have a website. Amazon, and my website is ronagray.com. There's a tab for books, and you can get the books. You can contact me if anyone has questions or wants a special book signed to someone in particular. Uh, they're at some local bookstores in Baton Rouge as well, but I know you've got listeners all over. So uh, Amazon or ronagray.com are probably your best bets there. Right. Well, thank you, Rana, for joining us from the airport yeah. in New Orleans. And um, I'm in Meridian, Mississippi. And um, so the Traveling Book Podcast is kind of like the Traveling Book Podcast today. Um, but I really enjoy talking to you. And I am so glad I met you that day um, in the know, Garden District. Too, I am so and glad. I, I, see, have... I see she has a new book uh, coming out that she's already. Oh, sorry. Okay. No, hope to see you again. I was saying Karen White has a new book coming out in New Orleans. Uh, she's making plans for the spring, so maybe we'll see you again. Yes, maybe so, because um, it's been almost a year since um, her last book came out. And right. we did interview Karen White on the podcast um, a few I months back. Um, so if you are new to the podcast, we're a brand new podcast, um, haven't even been out for a year yet. And we would love to get some followers. Give us a like or a follow on Spotify. And that helps for other people to, to learn about the podcast too. And um, Raina, it has been a pleasure talking to you about your book, Familiar Evil, and learning more about your children's books um, that are as well, because I'm definitely going to order those um, for the little library book boxes in my neighborhood. Um, and it has been a pleasure speaking with you today and I hope you have a great flight to Michigan to the book fair and enjoy your weekend. 
And thank you to our listeners for uh, listening in to the Talking Book Podcast. And I will get the audio up and edited today, and it will be on Spotify. And Rana, I will send you the link to that so that you can share it on your social medias and people can just simply click that link and listen to it. They don't even have to have That'd Spotify. Be great. Thank you so much for the invitation. I enjoyed it, Perry. Okay. Well, have a great day. Thank you so much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.